Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, please. Looking forward to this today, the more excellent way. Let me read to you uh, just beginning in verse 4, because that's where we started out last week. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, because the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for this text written by Paul and really in the context of his admonishing Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony, Lord. He goes on to just show us what that harmony looks like as it's lived out within the church. Father God, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your truth today and that it would bring transformation. Lord, that we would not just hear and gain more knowledge, but Father, it might be knowledge that is actually applied in our lives, Lord. And we know that your Holy Spirit is able to do that and able to enable us to live according to your will each day of our lives. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul began chapter 4 with his call for unity, especially for unity between the two ladies that I mentioned in my prayer. And we looked at his call for the saints to rejoice, to rejoice. And now we're going to explore six directives that Paul goes on to bring before the church at Philippi. And I've given the title to these six directives, The More Excellent Way. It's a more excellent way in the sense of the way that Iodia and Syntyche were experiencing. He corrected them. He admonished them to live in unity with one another. And in a, in a, in a sense, you can actually see what the negative results would be if they did not live in the unity that he admonished them to live in and it affected the whole church. Because a lack of joy would call for rejoicing, and he calls for rejoicing. So obviously there must have been a lack of joy in the church due to that disunity. An overly strident approach, almost legalistic, calls for a gentle spirit to be adopted. And self-absorption with being right calls for remembering the presence of God, that he is near. And worry and anxiety would call for a renewed dependence on God through prayer. And discontent and dissatisfaction calls for dependent prayer with gratitude. 
minds too focused on pettiness and the differences that they were experiencing amongst themselves needed to refocus on wholesome thoughts fueled by the gospel and Jesus Christ himself. And all that is laid out for us. And Paul's showing a more excellent way to live as opposed to the way that could develop and maybe even was present in the church at Philippi. And so after encouraging them to rejoice and repeating it twice and telling us that that rejoicing is to take place always, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Well, the more excellent way of gentleness is being promoted here. And it's an excellent way in contrast to the way taken by Iodia and Sintike. When we consider Paul's admonition to the two women and the fact that he called a trusted brother into the restoration process, we can determine that there was disunity and a distinctive lack of joy as a result of their difficulties. But Paul goes on with his directives for the believers to show that it was not only a lack of unity in rejoicing, but there was also a more excellent way for them to live together, and that was to have a gentle spirit with one another. Now, I'm reading into this verse a bit. It doesn't actually say that they were not gentle with one another, but they were in disunity. And we know that Lydia was a businesswoman and seemingly quite wealthy. She had her own home with servants. And I could, I could see where maybe Philippi was filled with some women of high repute, a lot of power, a lot of strength. Nothing wrong with that as long as it's brought under the power of the Holy Spirit. We did talk about women's roles in the church a couple of weeks ago, so you know where we stand on that. But I think, I think Iodia and Sintike were, were leading women in the church amongst the women, and their disunity was causing all sorts of turmoil. And so Paul says, let a gentle spirit be known among you. It's a difficult word to translate, actually, gentleness. It's a really nuanced word in the Greek language and you can't hardly find an English equivalent. Here it speaks of all the Philippians treating each other with clemency and kindness, leniency, graciousness, mildness, moderation, and tolerance of one another and not being overly insistent on minor things and maybe that's what got Iodia and Sintike in trouble. Don't make minor things into big, major things. It implies meeting a person halfway, and all of those meanings are related to this Greek word translated gentle in our text. In most of our Bibles today, that's what we read. And so we're back to Iodia and Sintike, who needed to back down from their insistence on getting their own way, because what else would bring disunity, right? Obviously, not speaking in the area of doctrine, you don't back down when it comes to doctrine. But this was interpersonal relationships. And the two women had to bring it together. And then the believers also. And this gentleness, the inner attitude of kindness and mildness and graciousness, is nothing more than the Christ mind so marvelously exampled in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read that to you again. 
have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And right before that, Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I I think this is a whole, this is just one letter. My wife often reminds me, Steve, just remember that this was just one letter. And sometimes we get lost in the weeds because we go into the, the words and the etymology and the background of the words and everything. When the Philippians received this, it was one letter that was read to them. Now, they were conversant with the whole context, so they knew what was going on, and a lot more uh, informed than we are, and that's why it takes a little bit longer for us today to break down and exposit these scriptures. But it's important that we understand that this gentleness is an inner attitude. Uh, It's a Christ attitude in 1 Corinthians 10.1, we see Paul urging the Corinthians as a motive for them to receive his teaching because they were uh, less than receptive. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, it says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm absent. A little bit of sarcasm there. This gentleness is not weakness by any stretch of the imagination or timidity that is often attributed to a person who we would say is meek. Instead, it's that Christian virtue that is displayed when evil is repaid with good. As Paul challenged the Corinthians in another place, actually then it is already a a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? It's that allowing oneself to be mistreated, to allow oneself to be wronged for the sake of the gospel and as a testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the gentleness and meekness referred to here. Uh, After I'm done preaching, we're going to hear a a call out, a shout out to you. I told you the the Spirit of God is is working in us at Beacon, uh, uh, emphasis on missions. I am a missionary, personally. (laughs) I'm a missionary, and yet... It seems that he's intensifying us to think about missions. We're going to hear about uh, Pastor Nilos. He was here with us from the Philippines, Mendenao. One of his church planting uh, men that they trained down in Mendenao was shot by radical Islamists, shot right in the head, killed. And so they pulled their missionaries out of there, that area, and Pastor Nilo knows that in the Filipino context... Um, that the Filipinos would think that they're gathering together to do payback. That's why they pulled them back away from uh, the area. But instead, what he's doing is he's proposing a project, and Mike is going to share that with us, and they're calling it payback. But they're raising money to establish a water system that will help them with their rice development. And the whole community, including those radical Islamists who live there, will benefit from that. And that's going to be their response repaying evil with good. That's a gentle spirit. And that's not what is expected by those in the world. 
patience or long-suffering is within the word family of this gentleness that we're talking about. And there's a parallel passage that has almost uh, the same elements in it that Paul packed into Philippians 4, 4 through 6 here. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14c through 18, if you want to mark that down. The context is dealing with people and the problems that they have. Where you have people, you have problems. That's why I'm very, very content with the church and the size that we are. Okay? I don't want a 2,000-member church or 4,000 or, heaven forbid, 16,000. God holds us as pastors responsible. How do you shepherd that? In that context, he was dealing with people and the problems they have. He was dealing with people who are unruly. So think of a long, straight line of soldiers, and then one guy's out standing nonchalant in front of the line. That's unruly. He's out of place. He's out of line. And he says in that passage in Thessalonians, with the unruly, you admonish them. But then there's the faint-hearted and these are people with small souls. They're just like overwhelmed by everything that's happening in their lives. And, and, and with those, you encourage them. You come alongside them and encourage them. And then you have people who are weak. And these are the ones that you help. You come by them and help. It, the picture is actually coming on each side of this weak person and holding them up. Beautiful, beautiful picture and, and direction for how to shepherd folks. But then Paul admonished the believers that they are to be patient with all men. Very similar to Paul's words here, to have that gentle spirit. Some translations use the English word long-suffering, which means to suffer for a long time as you minister in a difficult situation. It's all over Philippians. Be patient with all men, Philippians 4, 5. Don't repay evil for evil, Philippians 4, 6. You see it talked about there. Seek after, be very intentional for what is good for one another. Rejoice always, Philippians 4, 4. Pray without ceasing, Philippians 4, 6. Give thanks in everything, Philippians 4, 6. All those concepts, all those elements are repeated in the first Thessalonian passage. It's almost as if this stuff just, it was what Paul ate for breakfast every morning and for lunch and for supper. It's what he breathed in and breathed out. These, these elements of living together interrelated in a way that is pleasing to God and which is the fruit of the gospel. Paul's a church planter. And so he ran into these kind of things all the time. His church has had problems. And he says in Philippians 4, 5 here, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This takes it from the theoretical to the practical. Too often the truth of the Bible misses the mark by about 18 inches. It's here, but it's not here. It's not being lived out. It's not heartfelt and head knowledge and heart knowledge are two different things. One person explains sanctification using just three words. He says sanctification is head, you got to have the knowledge. Heart, 
You have to really believe it and hold it. And then it's hands. Then you go out and you do it. And you use it. A lot of people have just the head. It's just the knowledge up here. Known. Let it be known, Paul says. It's a knowledge that's gained by experience, not just head knowledge. Consequently, the clause could be paraphrased. Don't keep this attitude of sweet reasonableness, the gentleness, the clemency, kindness, leniency, graciousness, mildness, moderation, and tolerance in your heart and head only. Let it find its outward expression in the way that you behave, in the way that you live and interact with one another. That's why I link this right back to Eodia and Sintake. It's the context of what he's talking about. It's why he's admonishing the Philippians and by extension us in our interpersonal relationships. 1 Corinthians 8.1 talks about the problem of knowledge alone. Knowledge is a good thing. But Paul says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is a necessary thing but by itself it only leads to pride. Paul said, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love edifies. So knowledge just makes people proud. You know why? Because knowledge alone turns and stops on the person with the knowledge. It's theirs. Knowledge alone is self-gratification. Knowledge terminates on me. Knowledge ends right here with me. I know. That's not the kind of knowing that Paul's referring to here. Let that gentle spirit be known among all men. It's kind of like Isaiah 47.10, a negative and, and very interesting verse. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. They have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Wow. I, I thought God said, I am, and there is no one beside me, and he did. But Isaiah is saying, Israel, you're adopting this attitude. You're not God. But Paul didn't stop with knowledge alone. He added something that tempers that knowledge, something that kind of shaves off the pride and the, the sheer intellectual information. He said, but, a contrast of, but love edifies, love builds up. Love takes intellectual knowledge and it runs it through the heart and out through the body in function. And the intention is to see that others benefit. That knowledge that's been run through the heart then goes out to serve others. Save to serve. Knowledge is very important, for no one can walk in what they don't know. You've got to have knowledge, folks. That's why we teach here. That's why we have Bible studies here, so that we can give you the knowledge that you need, but knowledge alone is not going to do it. You know, there are, there, are, there are conference junkies out there, groupies that go from conference to conference to conference. I remember one guy took me in his study in his home and he just showed me all the all the notebooks from all the conferences he had been at you know over the years and I just thought wow that is a lot of responsibility he says what do you mean I said you were exposed to so much truth in all of those conferences how you doing living it 
It's important we understand these things, folks. So, knowledge is very important because nobody can walk without knowing, but knowledge divorced from truth merely devolves into self-adulation, unadulterated pride. So Paul in Philippians 4, 5 admonished the, the believers there, let, which is a command actually, it's in the imperative, their gentle spirit be known to all men. And then he goes on and he says, the Lord is near, which is very interesting. See it there in your text? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Now, what on earth does that mean? There's a lot of different interpretations, and I had kind of a fun time tracking this down. The Lord is near has been interpreted at least in a couple of ways. The Lord is near, meaning the Lord's return is near. I think that's true, and every day it's more true. It's nearer than it was yesterday. The Lord is near through his spirit in us. Okay, that's true as well. Or both of the above. Guys that don't want to really dig down there, they just say, yeah, it means all that. It's good. It's all good. Okay. And how exactly was Paul using this statement? Was he using the Lord is near as a warning of the second coming? Because he will come with judgment, you know. Or was he possibly using it as an encouragement and assurance that the second coming is near, so be encouraged and so obey Paul's uh, commands here to let your gentle spirit be known among all men. Possibly as a motivation, looking back to the need for unity or maybe a, a motivation preparing them and an encouragement for them to pray, which we're going to see in a moment. Well, the phrase brought to my mind an interchange between Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins. Yes, I love Tolkien, okay? And one time, Gandalf came to visit Bilbo, and he knocked at his door, and he said, Good morning, said Bilbo. And he meant it. The sun was shining, and the grass was very green, but Gandalf looked at him from under long, bushy eyebrows that stuck out further than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he said. Do you wish me a good morning? Or mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? or that you feel good this morning, or that it is a morning to be good on? And Bilbo just looked at him and said, all of the above. And a very fine morning for a pipe of tobacco out of doors into the bargain. And then Gandalf said, good morning. Means very many things. Because Bilbo said, good morning. We don't want any adventures here, thank you very much. You might try over the hill or cross the water. So by this, he meant that the conversation was over. And then Gandalf says, what a lot of things you do use good morning for. What a lot of things. And that, that came to my mind as I was looking at this, the Lord is near. Because I tell you, I, there's a lot of commentators that go every which way with this. But we've got to come down to it. So what I usually do then as I look up the etymology of the word near. Lexical information on the word near. That didn't help at all. Not at all. Because y you find that it can mean two things. It can either mean spatially that it's close in proximity to us or it's, it's chronological that like the Lord's coming is near. 
So you, you kind of whittled it down to at least those two. And I came up with the, the first, his presence with believers, spatially. Some believe Paul to literally be quoting from the Greek uh, inter, uh, translation, the Septuagint, Psalm 145, 18, which says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And there's so many other Old Testament scriptures, and you, you realize that the Old Testament was Paul's Bible, right? He didn't call it the Old Testament. It was the Testament, the Torah. It's what he used. Psalm 73, 28 says, The nearness of my God is my good. Amen to that. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 75, 1, We give thanks to you, O God, for your name is near Psalm 119, 151, you are near, O Lord. In Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. All those talking about proximity, he's near, he's present with us. Now, this is how this truth will impact the believer's life. The presence of the Lord with his people emboldens and strengthens us. Whether we say, let their gentle spirit be known to all men, or as they are being anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, letting their requests be known, meaning that the phrase can go either backwards or forwards because it just kind of dropped in there. It doesn't even seem like it should be there. The enduring presence of the Lord is, is a truth that all believers should cultivate so they can practice it in their lives. The nearness of the Lord, his presence with us, enables us to obey the commands that Paul has given us here. These six directives. And so Paul just drops it right in there. There's a wonderful promise of God in Hebrews 13.5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. People, some of you need to hear this promise and grab onto it. The phrase has said in that text is intensive and adds an emphasis to the fact that the following promise that he'll never leave or forsake was spoken by the Lord himself. Furthermore, the verb said is in the perfect tense, which means that God's statement was made at some point in time in the past and has not been retracted or reversed, but it is still in effect to date. Don't forget that Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. can't tell you how many times that I claimed just that part of that verse when I was overseas in precarious positions. I know you're with me, Lord. I know you're with me. He himself has said, I'll never desert you. You know, what's really interesting is that that is also taken from the Old Testament, Genesis 28, 15, where God assured Jacob just after his dream that he was with him and he would protect him whatever might happen and wherever he would go. It's also seen in Deuteronomy 31, 6, where Moses assures Israel just before he died. He said, be strong and courageous and do not be afraid or tremble at them, your enemies, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you he will not fail you or forsake you. And again, the same thing he said to Joshua. I, I love Joshua and the story of Joshua. 
He was a young man, and he was Moses' protege, but Moses was dying. And Moses says to him, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you, Joshua. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And, and, and that was good for Joshua because I think it was dawning on Joshua, Moses is leaving, and I am going to be the one that leads the people into the promised land. Can you imagine the pressure of that? And Moses comforted him with the fact of God's presence. And these are the words that David said to his son Solomon when he is affirming Solomon's role in building a temple. First Chronicles 28, 9. Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord, my God, is with you. He will not fail or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. So I take it to be proximity and spatial. The Lord is near. He's right here present with us. In Hebrews 13.5, that beautiful promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us, there's a double negative. It means never ever is the idea. He could not state this point any stronger. In the Greek, the promise is very emphatic and it could actually read this. I will never, never, never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. You want to get a tattoo? Get that sucker tattooed right across your forehead. So every time you look in the mirror, you're reminded of God's faithfulness. And be encouraged encouraged people now, I don't know if we can fit this in but I'm going to try this is a sense I believe that Paul wanted the believers at Philippi to understand his simple phrase at the end of verse 5 the Lord is near we need to learn to practice the presence of the Lord in our life moment by moment walking closely with him not just on Sunday morning or just at Bible study and then he says a very interesting thing in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And I told you last week that it's not like, don't worry, be happy. It's not like that at all. It's much deeper. The presence of an anxiety affects people a lot. Worry, discouragement, depression, despair, discontent, fear, they're all associated and related to the term anxiety. Do you know that in our day, over 43% of North Americans are taking mood-altering medications? 43%. That's like one out of two. <laughs> Every other person is on mood-altering Medications. Almost half of all the people in Canada and the U.S. are using anti-anxiety medication in order to cope with the issues of their life. And yet, God tells us in his word, be anxious for nothing. Medications like Zoloft and Paxil are ranked 7th and 8th on the top 10 prescribed meds, listed for all meds prescribed. And it's nearly a 5 billion, B, B, billion dollar business. I left a doctor because every time I would go into him, he'd try to get me on antidepressant pills. I, I kept asking him, do I seem depressed? I mean, <laughs> I don't know if he got a cut or what, and if there's any doctors in here, forgive me, but hey, 
I literally changed doctors because he's pushing meds on me. Anxiety is not only a big problem, but it's also big business, it seems. And just because you may be a child of God, listen to me, it is no guarantee that you will not experience anxiety in your life. But experiencing anxiety in your life and living under the pressure of that anxiety is not something that God would have us to do. I'm not discounting depression. There's a lot to be depressed about, but there's also a lot to rejoice in. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Go back and listen to that sermon last week, right? The Bible addresses this problem in more places than just our text. Psalm 94, 19 says, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Seems that the psalmist experienced times when the cares of his heart were many. All of us can relate to this, I know. Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down. Isn't that true? But a good word makes it glad. So it's clear that God's people are not immune from experiencing anxiety. And some of God's choicest servants have, have told us of their anxiety. Spurgeon, for one, in his lectures to his students, he says, quote, knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be a conciliatory uh, and, and uh, consoling to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts on this. And he does, and he talks about it. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention an excellent book written by Dr. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Excellent book. It should be on every one of your bookshelves because we we all face seasons when our cares are heavy and we need to go back and read that. Very encouraging So what does anxiety really mean? Everybody experiences it at times, and they become concerned about this situation or that, and even deeply concerned in a change in employment or a doctor's diagnosis suddenly, or relational strife. But being concerned and experiencing anxiety are two different things. What does anxiety mean in simple layman's terms? Well, we can answer that in the scriptures, and I want you all to turn to Psalm 42 real quickly with me. Psalm 42, and I'd like to read to you from uh, beginning in verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Well, right there you've got despair. This is David. This is a, a psalm that... that um, <laughs> It shows that he had despair. He was despairing. He was cast down, sunk down, and he was disturbed. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, he said, for the help of his presence. Oh, gosh, that sounds frightfully familiar, his presence. And then verse 6 says, Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls unto deep, and that doesn't mean a good thing. 
It's, it's, it's significant of waves, one after the other, rolling upon the other at the sound of your waterfalls. The waterfall is just falling upon this poor soul, suffering, and all your breakers, again, the waves, and your waves have rolled over me. This person's drowning, okay? And he feels like it. The Lord will command his loving kindness in daytime, and his songs will be with me in the night a prayer to the God of my life. I'll say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemies? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Look at those terms. He felt forgotten, set aside, like God's no longer considering him. And he was mourning and he was feeling oppressed to the point where he felt like his bones were shattered. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him to help my countenance and my God. Well, I could say an awful lot about that, but all I'm going to say is that even in the depths of his despair, he constantly spoke to his own heart and said, hope in God, hope in God, remember God, okay? So he's ministering to himself. It's not that he didn't experience the emotion of that depression, despair, feeling like he was forgotten, put aside. But even in the midst of feeling like that, he did not wallow there. He did not allow himself to stay there. Never forget John MacArthur and John Piper having a, a little round table discussion. They were talking about depression, and, and John Piper, bless his heart, talked about how he suffered depression very seriously. And for weeks, he just wept and wept and wept. And John MacArthur was sitting next to him going, <laughs> He couldn't hardly believe it. And, and, and then he kind of caught himself, John did, MacArthur. And he said, Well, I feel things deeply too. I mean, there's times where, where I, I, I get pretty down. He said, but then I, I just, I pull myself up out of that because there's more work to be done. And, and he said, but, but weeks? You, you cried for weeks? <laughs> it was, it's, still on, it's still on YouTube. You've got to download it. It's, it's, it's great. Two different men, right? Two different personalities, both greatly used by God. But depression is real. And it happens. The thing is, is that you cannot just allow yourself to remain there. Yet all through the description of anxiety, he comes back, hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Now, I want to share with something with you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this might be a shock to you. There is an answer to anxiety. And it's just one word, and it's not Christ. It is Christ, but it's not Christ, okay? I mean, that's the standard Sunday school answer, right? God, Jesus, okay? But in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, we read this. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders 
and all of you, so it's more than just a young man, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I would promote to you that obeying that command of casting all your anxiety on him is an intentional action. It's kind of like the psalmist saying, I will yet hope in him. I will yet believe that I'm going to see him in the land of the living. It's a decision that a person chooses to make and it reflects willing submission to obey God's call for humility. The answer for the heart filled with anxiety then is humility. One word. Humility. It's easy for someone to say that they're depressed when they are, actually. And, and they're discouraged and given to worry and they're filled with anxiety. But not many readily come to admit that the root of all that is pride. It's pride. Does God love you? Yes. He loves you enough that he died for you. Is God sovereign? Yes, he's king of king and lord of lords, isn't he? Is God unaware of your situation or anything in the world? No. He's God. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Is anything too hard for God or impossible for him? No. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me, Jeremiah 32, 37? No. With man, this is impossible, Jesus said, but with God, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's sitting on his throne, sovereign over all, and he is with us. He's with us. And he really does love you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says he cares for you. And Romans 8.28 tells us that he's always at work causing all things to work together for good to those who love him. Even the thing that's making you depressed. He's using that to your good. We Americans, we forget that God uses suffering for sanctification purposes. It's like when I was talking last week about being happy, it's overrated. Life is hard and then you die. Life is hard, people. It's hard on young men. It's hard on old women. It's hard on all of us, right? So what, why do we expect smooth sailing? That comes later. That's later. Work while it's yet day. So if we're afraid or worrying, depressed, discouraged, cast down, or in despair, what are we really saying is if we remain there and just wallow there, we're saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're all-powerful. I don't believe that you are all-knowing. Either I believe you don't know about what troubles me, or I believe that you really do not have control over all things because you could change it, or I really believe that you don't really, really care about me. Is anybody willing to stand up and say that? Beloved, is that, you see where pride comes in here? What we really are saying to ourselves in this anxiety when it's overwhelming us is, I trust me with me more than I trust you with me, God. Okay? I trust me to take care of me 
more than I trust you to take care of me. Let me ask you, if you were to actually say that aloud, wouldn't that sound proud? It does. I know this is a hard word, right? But that's, that's what you pay me the big bucks for. I bring the hard words. Think about this. If we would be humble, if we would instead cast our anxiety on him, trusting him to take care of us, humble ourselves by casting our anxiety on him, the one who truly cares for us, wouldn't that be an act of obedience? Right? There's nothing more humbling than dependently praying to the one that we can't see and trusting him with what cares and concerns that we might be experiencing. And that is exactly why the apostle finishes off his sentence in Philippians 4, 6 regarding his admonition for believers not to be anxious by directing us to pray, to pray. And that's for next time we're together. But listen, I want to say something to you. Don't take the hard statement and don't be a hater. Don't, don't, don't be offended. Don't become even more, even more um, depressed. Don't do that. Come talk with us. Let, us. let us pray with you. Let us be that encouragement to you and stand alongside you to help you. Next week, we're going to look, or the next time we get together, we're going to look at the very next uh, verses that Paul brings out here because we're still in the directives. He goes on to say, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It all hangs together, people. It all hangs together. And my wife is correct. It is just one letter. So it's not all broken up like we do. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you. And we thank you for the good news of the gospel that releases us completely from the guilt that we bear because of our sin. Yes, you've released us from the wrath toward our sin, but you've also released us from the guilt that so many of us feel because of our sin. And God, when you said on the cross, Jesus, it is finished, it is finished. Father, let us let it be finished in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.